0: Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation two. We'll look at verses eight through eleven this morning. And the text is also in the bulletin. <clears throat> We're uh, getting into the letters that Jesus uh, dictated to John to send to the seven churches uh, to whom Revelation, as a whole, are uh, are addressed is addressed. Um, as we get into these seven letters, there's a lot of similarities and uh, connections between each of these messages from Jesus to the churches. There's a lot of patterns that we see, and, uh, um, and so I'll list several of the features of, uh, of these messages that are really mostly shared by all of them. So first, Jesus instructs John to address the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, which we looked at um, as, uh, as sort of a... He's addressing the pastor. He's addressing the leader of the church. Uh, secondly, Jesus instructs John to write... Uh, The words of. It looks like his own words. So this is the words of Jesus to each of these churches or each of the pastors of these churches. Uh, Third, Jesus describes himself with an aspect of John's vision of him. Uh, If you go back to just just before these letters, at the end of chapter 1, John has this, this wonderful, glorious vision of Jesus. And each of these letters opens with a reference to one of those aspects of Jesus and his glory. Uh, Fourth, Jesus begins by saying, I know you, I know your works, or I know your situation. And he usually uh, commends them for what he knows about them. And then, fifth, usually warns them about a need for their repentance in some area. Like last week we looked at, uh, he says, I have this against you, uh, which he says to a lot of the churches, I have this against you, that you've lost your first love. That was the first... um, letter to the Ephesian church that he warned them about that need for repentance. sixth, Jesus promises a reward to the one who conquers. That language shows up in each of these letters. To the one who conquers, I will give this or that. And then later in the book of Revelation he's shown as fulfilling those specific promises. Each thing that he promises to the one that conquers, you see it uh, being given later in the book of Revelation because he's faithful to fulfill the promises and give the rewards that he promised. And then uh, seventh, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> he says that in each of the letters. So overall, there's this pattern in these seven letters, in uh, each of them. And, and there's a pattern of a, the, all the letters together. They form, sorry if this is super uh, uninteresting to you, but it actually is meaningful. They, they form this shape. They form this uh, this, it's called a chiasm, right? Maybe you've heard... Me explain that boring term to you before. Uh, it's, it's a shape, right? So as you go from the first to the last, you take this sort of a, it's like an X, right? So the center is the focal point, uh, but there are similarities between the first and the last. And then as you move in, there's similarities between the second and the second to the last. And then, so in, in our case, uh, this is true, and the three in the middle are similar to each other, and the thematic focus or the emphasis is on that. Center, center one. And so uh, today we're looking at the second letter. And the unique thing about the second letter and the second to the last letter, the sixth letter, in the pattern that they all share, is that, uh, that Jesus doesn't say to these churches, I have something against you. He doesn't say that in the second letter or the sixth letter. He doesn't warn them about their need for repentance on a particular matter. So you've probably heard it said... Um, Jesus came to afflict the comfortable, which is what he's doing in five out of seven letters. Afflicting the comfortable, and he also came to to comfort the afflicted. That's what he's doing in these, uh, especially here uh, this morning in our uh, second letter to the church church in Smyrna. This is one of the comfort the afflicted moments where Jesus is just encouraging his people to hang in there and not be afraid. And what he offers... For our encouragement, for our ultimate encouragement, is the promise of our resurrection that's guaranteed in his own resurrection. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray for your help because you taught us to pray for your help. You seem to be the kind of God who wants to help his people, to encourage us to strengthen us, to change us for our own good. You've given us Your Word for that end, for that purpose, and You've told us to ask for Your Spirit's help to that end, for that purpose. So, so we ask, as we consider Your Word this morning, that Your Spirit would help us. We pray that You would bless us as we read and think about this Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the most deeply troubling things that the church has ever faced was the historical setting for this letter in the first century. it's one of the hardest times for the church, the early church. It was the persecution that they faced at the hands of the Jewish leaders in particular. That was one of the most difficult things the church has ever faced. The The Jews were Yahweh's chosen people. This God, this one true God that Christians worship, He's the God of the Jews first. So they were His chosen people. God had prepared them For over a thousand years, that's a really long time, He prepared them to anticipate the Messiah, the Christ, and to receive Him as King when He came. God made so many promises to the Jews. To be their God and to have them as His own treasured people. To work through them to bring salvation to the nations. To bless them and make them a blessing to others. God made all these promises to the Jews, but when their Messiah came, when the Jewish Messiah came, John records in his gospel, in the beginning of it, his own people, his own people did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him violently. The Jewish religious leaders became the worst of all Jesus' enemies. The worst of them all. The worst of all, the nations raging against the Christ was His own nation, which is so tragic and unsettling precisely because of their special relationship to God. How can this happen? Their unfaithfulness to Yahweh and to their Messiah, to Yahweh's Messiah, His Christ, His King, their unfaithfulness, is likened to a wife betraying her husband. And that betrayal cuts deepest of all. There is no deeper betrayal. It's probably important to mention that it wasn't all Jews who rejected Jesus. I mean, the, the core of his followers were all Jews. So it wasn't all the Jews who rejected Jesus, but primarily the Jewish religious leaders who felt threatened by him, who made themselves his enemies, who threw him under the Roman bus. And as John recorded in his gospel, they, they were particularly angry at Jesus when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. So they hatched this clever plan. Here's this one who has power over life and death. Let's kill him. I guess, I don't know what they were expecting to happen, or where they thought that was going to end up. Uh, the one who has power over life and death, let's kill him. But, uh, <clears throat> but they they wanted to. They plotted against him, and so they brought false accusations against him. Slander is language we find in our passage. And throughout the Scriptures, false accusations and slander. They manipulated Pilate by appealing to his political motives and pressuring him to crucify this revolutionary who's obviously a threat to Roman rule, right? He claims to be king, and therefore he's a rival threat to Caesar, And even though they were God's chosen people called to faithfulness to Yahweh and to His Christ, they declared their sole allegiance to Rome. They claimed to be loyal subjects, acting only in the best interests of the empire, and they said, we have no king but Caesar in order to get the Roman governor to put Jesus to death. So after the death of Christ, And after his resurrection And after his ascension to God's right hand In glory They turned their sights upon those who were associated with Jesus And they persecuted the church In the same way Throughout the book of Acts The main enemy to the church Was the Jewish religious leaders The main enemy, the constant threat Whether They were in the temple in Jerusalem or far away in the synagogues in in distant Roman cities. Those who were meant to be God's faithful people became the most antagonistic persecutors of God's people. They chased the Christians from town to town to get rid of them. And it appears that the Jews... Took the same strategy against the church that had worked so well for them against Jesus, getting rid of the Lord of Life by killing him, uh, even though it didn't work out so well for them. Actually, they they tried the same strategy. They became informants against the Christians. They became false accusers of the Christians. They told they told on the Romans. They tattletailed, Right? It's like they told on the Romans. Uh, uh, told to the Romans that the Christians were a threat to the peace because Christians refused to call Caesar Lord and they refused to offer sacrifices to Caesar like good Romans do. And if you were part of the first century church, this would probably cause you all sorts of pain, all sorts of confusion. It would be distressing and disturbing enough to face the the physical and the economic trouble that the Jews were stirring up that the Romans were putting on you. That's one thing. But on top of that, imagine the insecurity, the angst, wondering, am I actually being faithful to God by following Jesus? Because here's the ancient people of God violently opposed to what we're doing, violently opposed to our our confession of faith. Aren't we supposed to be on the same side? It makes you wonder, whether you're on the right side of history when you're an obscure minority that's being persecuted by the Jews. These are the conditions that the church in Smyrna was facing, and the Lord wanted them to take heart, so He addressed the angel or the messenger or the pastor. There. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those, false accusations of those, who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's pretty strong language. It appears that at least the leader of the church in Smyrna, that's who Jesus is talking to, I know your tribulation, singular, I know your poverty. Um, At least the leader of the church in Smyrna has experienced real suffering and financial loss. Fines or his property confiscated or whatever because of the slander, the false accusations that the Jews had brought to the Romans. The Romans were the ones with the real power. The Jews couldn't prosecute the Christians. They had to get the Romans to do it. And they did it through slander. Two millennia of experience tells us that it's often the pastors of the church who are first to be targeted by the authorities for persecution. It's the leaders, it's the speakers, it's the teachers people who are influencing this group of people. Today, there are more Christians being killed for their faith than ever. And we hear stories of pastors being taken, being separated from their families, being imprisoned, being tortured, being killed. And as our own culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, I don't know how to characterize it, whether you'd say it's becoming increasingly post-Christian or whatever, um, But maybe open hostility is becoming more permissible. I'd expect we'll hear hear stories of pastors being fined, being jailed for hate speech if it's the hyper-liberals who are in charge, or for subversion and treason if it's the hyper-conservative like totalitarians who are in charge. Jesus begins to set the Smyrna pastor's mind at ease in a couple of ways. He says, first, even though though the, the pastor there has become poor in terms of worldly possessions, he's rich in spiritual wealth. He has real wealth. He has true wealth. Because the faithful believer has God. He has Jesus himself as his treasure. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven not just earthly treasures, earthly money. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he might add, in a place like this, where persecuting authorities cannot confiscate. They can't take away your wealth, your richness toward God. If you are rich in God through a relationship with Jesus by faith, you are unimaginably wealthy. You will never... Know How wealthy you are And nothing can ever take that away from you Secondly Jesus States clearly that these Jews They're not true Jews But rather as slanderers of God's people Well they're associated with the great slanderer The great accuser Of God's people That's the devil himself In the Gospels, Jesus calls these Jewish religious authorities, He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them sons of the devil that are pursuing their father's interests, which is strong language. Which refers to their deep betrayal of God and of His Christ. It can be helpful to know who your enemies are and why they hate you. And Jesus says, they hate us because they first hated Him. And so we are hated by association. Were hated through association with Jesus. It was, it was their the, this church's association with Christ that got their enemies rankled. It wasn't that the believers had done something wrong. It wasn't that the church was experiencing God's abandonment or withdrawal. It was because of their association with Jesus. It's a very strong statement for Jesus to make that they say they're Jews, but they're not. He's saying that true Jews are those who are faithful in God's kingdom. And the ethnic national Jewish people who have opposed the Messiah, they've demonstrated that they're not faithful Jews. They're not true Jews. In fact, it comes down to it. There's only one true Jew. There's only one who is perfectly faithful to all of God's intentions For his people. Jesus Christ himself is the one true Jew. And to all who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God, to be called God's true people alongside of him by association with the true Jew. So the very association with Christ that got the church into trouble with those who call themselves Jews but are not true Jews that very association, the very same association, should reassure Christians that in fact we are God's true people in the world. Contrary to their persecution by the Jews being a reason for insecurity, it was a reason to celebrate their deep security in Christ because they were suffering tribulation in association with Him, because of their relationship with Him. In fact, because of their relationship to Christ, the devil himself... Was coming after them, and he would see to it that some of these Christians in Smyrna would be locked up in Roman prison. That's what happens in verse 10. He warns about that. Now, personally, I wish Jesus was like, hey guys, heads up, the authorities are coming for you. It would be a good time to relocate, take a long vacation, get out of town. I mean, he's giving them advance notice. Seriously. Couldn't he have told them how to be spared? Couldn't he have told them how to keep people happy, how to manage circumstances and avoid the suffering, or at least told them where the sympathizers were, where the safe houses might be, you know? Some way to escape the trouble that was coming, that he was warning them about. He's a good king who can tell the future. Why wouldn't he do that? He wants to see his people hold up faithfully under pressure. He wants his people to conquer in the same way that he has conquered and to share in his glory. That's what he wants for his people. So he has made arrangements for the opportunity. And he calls them not to escape but to endure. Yes, uh says, it's the devil throwing them into prison. But he also says the ultimate reason is so that they may be tested. It isn't the devil testing them. The lion of Judah is a good king, but as C.S. Lewis said, he's not a tame lion. The Lord Jesus does what he wants, even though you don't understand what that means. But here's how you know that he isn't just being sadistic or cruel, that even the most severe testing of our faith is ultimately for our good, even if it ends up in our death, then it's ultimately for our good. It's because He doesn't call us to endure anything which He Himself hasn't already endured to the greatest degree. He's already gone before us in these things. You can trust Him because He's laid down His life in the perfect testimony of His faithfulness to you and His love to you. You can trust Jesus because He's shown that... that The trajectory of our lives doesn't end in misery and death, but it ends with the new beginning of resurrection. That's the the real trajectory of our lives in him. He's shown that in his own life, death, and resurrection. He identifies himself here in this passage in the most relevant way in verse 8 as the first and the last who died and came to life. He Himself is the first word and the last word over our lives as His people. He is the one who encompasses our reality and defines all our reality. And it's His story that gives the shape to our story from beginning to end. And the first word of His story, and the first word of our story in Him, is death. And the last word of his story and the last word of our story in him is life. It isn't how we're all prone to suspect and fear that that first is life and then it's death and the end. With Jesus, the first is death and the last is life. With Jesus, life doesn't end in death. Death ends in life. Everlasting life, eternal life, resurrection life. So, Vern Poitras, he's got a commentary on uh, Revelation, and I've used this quote before. He says, his his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, is the foundation and pattern for the promised resurrection of believers. It's the foundation, which is to say that because Jesus died and was raised, we can be assured that when we die, we'll also be raised. We know it. It's guaranteed. Our resurrection is guaranteed by His resurrection. That's clear in the New Testament. Second, it's the pattern, which is to say, we should expect it to come in the same sequence that it came for with Him. First death, then life. All of this, it's not just some abstract idea or some philosophy. All of this because of our relationship to Him. Because of our association with Him. Because as it goes with the King, so it goes with the King's people. It's the promise for those who belong to Jesus, who entrust themselves to Jesus, who believe in Him, who are faithful to Him. He says in verse 10, Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, Jesus said in uh, John's Gospel, in the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Lazarus in uh, John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just that I give the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever has faith in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks the question, do you believe this? Because this is the antidote to fear. He says in verse 10, it's right in the middle of this passage, which means this is where the focus is, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear it. You're going to suffer. Do not fear it. And this is the antidote to fear. It's the resurrection. The church in Smyrna didn't have to be afraid that what they were about to suffer meant that the Lord was cruel or sadistic because he had pledged himself to be their resurrection and life. He's already pledged himself. He's already given himself. He's already promised that. He's not a cruel Lord just leading them into pain. They didn't have to fear that the Lord was distancing himself from them because this, this was how they're going to find their share in his resurrection and his life. They didn't have to fear that their lives would just end in misery and death because with Jesus, death doesn't end your hope for resurrection. Death is the prerequisite for resurrection. Resurrection is the true ending of His story, and it's the true ending of our story through our association with Him. In Christ, there may indeed be suffering in your present or in your future, but you don't have to fear it because you can stand with Him and face it. Jesus being your resurrection and your life can take away your fear. Whenever I'm tempted to any, any form of fear or doubt or discouragement or despair or depression, I have to ask the question, the ultimate question to ask and answer when you're facing any fear is well, is Jesus risen from the dead or isn't he? He is risen, he's risen indeed. This is the great truth that changes everything at the most fundamental level. It turns everything upside down for us in the the best way. It's the greatest good news that awakens our faithfulness to him. What is there to fear in being associated with Jesus? What is there to fear in being faithful to Jesus? Being faithful to Jesus can only result in his placing a crown of life on our heads. Remember that when you face hardships in this world because of your relationship to Him. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world facing severe persecutions that they would be fearless because of their sure hope of the crown of life. Let's not be afraid. Let's celebrate our association with Jesus, with the one who is the resurrection and the life of God's true people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're prone very easily to slip back into thinking that uh, first comes life and then comes death. So our life, um, we better make the most of it. We better squeeze in every ounce of pleasure and comfort and security in advance. And uh, we should put off death as long as we can and um, stop thinking about it for fear of it, bringing an end to all that we know. But your gospel says that, that first comes death and then comes life. We pray that you'd help us to be the kind of people who see that because we believe the resurrection of Jesus. We pray that you'd make us the kind of people who practice that as we go about daily dying to ourselves in order to experience the resurrection life of God in us, the life of Christ himself. And we pray that... Um, Above all, in in terms of this passage, you would help us to be fearless of death. Help us to be fearless of what others can do to us. Help us to be fearless of the things that we might suffer because of our association with Christ. We pray that our association with Christ, uh, we would not be ashamed of it or embarrassed by it or worried about what might happen to us because of it. We pray that our association with Christ would be the most delightful, wonderful, glorious, uplifting, transformational thing that we could possibly imagine. That it would give us the full security, the full assurance of knowing that um, even if we die at the hands of our enemies in this world, it's because of our association with Jesus, we'll live again forever with you and he will place the crown of life on our heads, he himself. We pray that that truth would become the most real truth to us in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.